Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. We've got a rotating lineup of reviews, top fives, and of course, lovely, friendly banter. I'm what, Scott what, Lenz. what was that? What what was that? Was, that? that was me improvising. What was that? that why, was are you, why are you why are you why are you improvising? Because Christian. It says in the script here, it says, and of course, beer. And I've been thinking about that. And the people at home you don't wrote necessarily the have beer. You wrote that part of the script, my friend. Oh, did you I? wrote that part, yes. But we have beer. We're drinking beer right now. That's true. I'm Scott Lenz, here with my drunk co-host, Christian Ubius. And we are joined by a friend of the show who just had to endure that train wreck of an opening. He's endured much worse. It's He's Nick Viner. Endured- hey! <laughs> Nick is a musician <laughs> out here with us in Los Angeles. You, and you had a song that dropped. Was it last night or today? Yeah, it was last night. And the title of that song is Track Record. Track Record, yes. It's okay. out now everywhere you listen to music. Uh, it's the second time uh, I'm together with you guys on a release week, so that's a pattern. That's fun. We'll keep that yeah, going. Yeah, we'll keep that going. <laughs> and whoever blows up first, we will just cloud chase exactly. forever. Uh, I'm just glad to, to know, Nick, because the last time you were on here, you were uh, talking about your new stuff. I had not listened to it in advance of the show, and now I have listened to Track Record multiple I've times. I've listened to Track Record multiple <laughs> times. So, I appreciate your job being a Nick Viner fan. But, we are... This is our top five episode. We do this episode every single year. Wait, we're, we're not talking about Star Wars Episode Nine. <laughs> Rise of Skywalker, baby. I had a friend who has only ever been drunk once in his life, and it was because he turned Star Wars Episode Nine into a drinking game where he took a shot every time he was upset. Is this friend <laughs> still with us? Is he alive? <laughs> of course, as Christian mentioned... It's time for an annual tradition here on the show where we take a pause at the end of the summer before fall movie season kicks off to reflect on the year so far, sharing our respective top fives. Okay. Yes, Christian. There's, no, there's, there's a lot to talk about. I think that if we just closed the year right now on movies, I'd be good. Um, and I don't always feel that way when we're at this part of the year but i've i've mentioned this a lot um i have movies i'm i'm really excited about the more i think about them the more excited i get but also are they going to be all of the movies that came before them i don't know i mean we've still got killers of the flower moon yes we do we have my astro which yes Despite its controversy, the trailer looks sick. Yo, have you seen the trailer? I've seen the trailer. The trailer looks sick. I would not say the trailer looks sick, but I would say it's a good trailer. Yeah. It's just like the shot on thirty-five looks. It looks like it's well shot. Yes. Uh, I don't. I don't know how much I can kind of garner other than that. Are you? Bradley Cooper is just a treasure, bro. I don't disagree. <laughs> okay. 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 Let's let's talk industry. We always do this. Blue Beetle has been out for four days, five days. It looks like no one cares. <laughs> well, you know, the, <laughs> jokes, the jokes about Blue Beetle were that it was going to make 30 maybe $40 opening weekend. And it made 
a disappointing but respectable in some some ways twenty five million at nope. the international box overtook office. Barbie at the box office. It was the first movie to come in at number yes. one since Barbie. So obviously yes. it's been a few weeks since Barbie came out, but that's still a nice little yes. accolade. I'm saying it feels like nobody cares because people are posting pictures of themselves with three other people in a movie theater as the only ones who have reserved their seat for Blue Beetle. And from... I have not seen Blue Beetle yet. I thought I was going to watch it before this episode. I was not able to. And also part of that is I don't know how much I want it to. I will eventually catch up with it. And I kind of um, I kind of want to because it is saying that in terms of, you know, us finally having a Hispanic superhero, it seems kind of legit. Like, And by that I mean, no, it's probably not going to be a perfect superhero movie. But it seems like it's a not bad superhero movie, and from DC, that's like, that that's like an A plus if it's a not bad superhero movie. Yeah, considering DC's other efforts this year, uh, <laughs> which come in near the bottom of my list of movies of the year so far, I I have to say the reception for Blue Beetle is pretty encouraging, and I, I might have to check it out myself. Nick, are superhero movies dead? Solve it right now. Solve it right now. Um, we've discussed this a little bit. Yeah. I don't know that they're dead. I feel fairly confident that they have peaked and that we will never get back to the levels of, uh, I guess, like cultural importance that they kind of held during the Infinity War endgame period of time. Yeah. Um, it was like I was telling you, it, we've reached a point where you have to watch four series of television to get one of the jokes an hour into a Marvel film. And I just think that's asking too much of your audience. That's asking them to be too invested in something. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think they're dead. I think that there's still room for superhero movies to have success at the box office, for people to be talking about them uh, in a glowing manner. But I definitely don't think we're getting back to where we were. I'm... For a while, people were okay, though, watching four seasons of a Marvel show in order to get the joke in the second hour. Except that, and let me be perfectly clear, when I say that there are exceptions, I mean that there are movies that are not bad that have come out this year that are superhero movies. There have not been movies of high quality from the superhero genre in a while. I mean, I do still love Spider-Man No Way Home. I actually do really enjoy that movie still, but come on are you telling me that that's the only superhero movie i can love in the past four years like what what is going on and the the top two movies at the box office worldwide last year were number one avatar the way of water number two top gun maverick both of which are sequels but are they're i i i somehow they're the same somehow they're completely different the number the two movies um, at the top of the worldwide box office this year, number one, I believe, is still the Super Mario Brothers movie. Right on its heels is Barbie. Barbie has passed it as of today. I thought wow. it was past it in the domestic, but not oh, worldwide. Oh, maybe that's it. That's a good point. Um, and so both of which are more than likely going to spawn franchises, considering there are a lot of other Nintendo games that are in the works and... The Polly Pocket movie being directed by Lena Dunham, Dunham has been greenlit. Oh, bring what? the comment, please. <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> but it's not a part of But but these are not. They they feel different. They don't like. Yes, they're definitely there to create a franchise. They're definitely there to create a world. But they're also there for people to like 
play with something. Um, Scott, I mean, what are your thoughts? Hollywood is a cyclical business. Genres come and go over time. And, Except for the horror movies. Uh, I mean, yes. <laughs> horror, original horror movies will live on forever. Horror, I always say, is the cockroach of the film industry. It will never die. But things come and go as it pertains to Hollywood. We've been making superhero movies for 50 and maybe even 60 years if you count the Adam West Batman movie, which is based off a TV show. But then Superman comes in the 70s and and, and still we, we didn't get a onslaught of superhero movies until the late aughts and the 2010s and Endgame I would say is where it peaked and we've sort of been coming down since then and yeah I've liked individual superhero flicks but it's not going to be the same as it was following Marvel for that first period of time and I think you can still make really good superhero movies like Matt Reeves' The Batman which is one of my favorite movies from last year but like all genres superhero flicks are just kind of they're going through that the ebb uh, of the ebb and the flow. And I'm sure in 20 or 30 years, we'll have kids going to see whatever superhero with something is back in theaters. And we'll be like, oh, I remember when the Marvel Cinematic Universe was new. And they'll be like, shut up, you're old. But everything comes and goes. Uh, so superhero movies will never die. They'll never disappear. But they're losing their cultural relevance. And as much as I enjoyed the superhero period at the box office as a person who was always in a Marvel movie opening weekend. I am now also excited to see them take a step back from prominence and start to see some other types of movies dominate the box office, whether it be Barbie and Oppenheimer, Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water, just different types of big-budget movies, while, of course, the smaller movies continue to thrive under the, under the hood there. It, I mean, it is kind of nice, though, to be like... The Fantastic Four still haven't been cast, and I don't care who they are. <laughs> uh, and now, like, the next time there's going to be a Marvel movie that I'm interested in, it's either going to be because I enjoy the actor who's playing the character, or because I enjoy the filmmaker or the screenwriter, and not because I need to follow or keep up with the story. Yeah. We say all this, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is the number three movie of the year. So Honestly, it's... forgot that that came out this year. <laughs> I was a big fan. Yeah, so, great. Yeah, and, and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, uh, also 6, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Not a good movie, but it was number nine. It still is number nine at the global box office. So superhero movies still have some kind of box office pull. We'll see if they ever truly start dropping like flies out of the top ten. That time is not yet, but... The critical reception dropping, fan reception dropping, box office in general dropping. So, we'll see. I put out a poll on Instagram to see what people's favorite movies of the year so far were. And a friend who shall not be named, because he's just simply the worst, said it was Ant-Man on the Walls of Quantumania. You should un unfollow that person on Instagram. Let them go. Let, let them... <laughs> Run free into the digital ether. Um, uh, you know what? I'll be, I'll be, I'll be shouting out some of the actual answers that we got. Um, Matt, if you're there, I love you, but but I'm not gonna give you space for that one. Um, all right. With that, let's start. Let's start going into our list. Let's start. Let's start going into our our top five list of the year so far. We have. Each shared our top five lists with each other. There's actually quite a bit of overlap. Scott, you and I have more overlap than I think I've ever seen on this list, on the midway point. Interesting. I was thinking that we didn't have a ton of overlap, because there's one movie that appears on all of our lists. Yes. And then you and I 
share two others. Share two others. That's right. So yeah. how about that? And then Nick, you were far more original than either of us. I was trying to be a contrarian. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> but you did say something about how <laughs> you you specifically were trying to. You mix left it up out. You your, left out a movie list, so. from your list because you knew that we would have it on our. Exactly. I knew it would get covered. There were other things I wanted to talk about, um, but yeah. Now, with that, Nick, we're going to start with your number five. So talk about your number five. My number five is a little film called The Boogeyman. <laughs> so The Boogeyman is the third feature film from Rob Savage, uh, whose previous work includes 2020's Quarantine Zoom Horror Host, uh, which I really enjoyed, um, I heard especially it mid-pandemic. It was kind of a fun thing to have. And uh, he also did a movie in 2021 that was a... A pandemic-themed road trip found footage horror movie called Dash Cam, which was one of my absolute least favorite films of that year. Um, so a bit of a mixed bag from him, and I kind of went into this movie with like middling expectations. It's a studio horror from a director who has had some hits and some misses. But it's also written by three writers who have some pretty impressive work in their catalog. So we've got Mark Heyman, who was a co-writer on Black Swan, and was also a co-writer on the Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig comedy, The Skeleton Twins, and writing-directing duo Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who co-wrote The Quiet Place, and directed one of my favorite horror movies of 2019, this movie called Haunt, uh, which I don't know if either of you have seen, but it is a film film that takes place on Halloween night and follows a group of teenagers who make their way to a sort of off-the-map haunted house, and as you can imagine, things go very poorly. Are you going to mention that they also wrote and directed 65? I am going to mention that. Uh, the Adam Driver fighting dinosaurs So again, movie. mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> but let's try and forget the 65 of it all. We're going to do it with an open mind. I hate that movie. I know you do. I didn't even see it. <laughs> I watched it on a plane, which was the perfect place to watch it. Yeah, you can kind of doze off. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, The Boogeyman is a studio horror produced by 20th Century um, and is based on a Stephen King short story. And the basic setup for this is that a father and his two daughters are still reeling from the death of their mother. So we've got the classic trauma setup. Mm-hmm. Um, love, love me a good trauma movie. And through what I can describe as a truly disturbing event, they become plagued by this malevolent presence that lives and thrives in the dark and in the shadows of their home. Now, this is not a perfect movie, and I can't imagine on other podcasts out there this is ending up on many top five lists of the year so far, but I personally love this thing. Uh, It's the exact kind of studio horror that I loved as a kid, and it brought me back to being in middle school and seeing movies like The Conjuring and Insidious in theaters, and just having like the life scared out of me. Uh, the creature design in this movie. I'm excited for you guys to see it whenever you do. It is gnarly. Like, so gnarly that it had me giggling in the theater. Um, And the jump scares, they're obvious. You can feel them coming. But they work because the team really knows how to play with lighting. This thing thriving in the dark really allows them to do some cool stuff with where this creature's coming from, where you're expecting it to be versus where it actually is. Um, and it stars Sophie Thatcher, who most people probably know from Yellow Jackets, and my boy Chris Messina, who went balls to the walls in air earlier this year. Dude, he did. He did. Um, and yeah, does this thing... Which one's Chris Messina? He's the agent. <laughs> the he's, uh, he's, agent for Michael Jordan in air, 
He is the gotcha. unsung Chris of Hollywood. He, yes. He's not often featured among the ranks of Hemsworth and Pine and Pratt, but... I thought that was Chris O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd is no longer really a Hollywood presence, unfortunately, I would say. I don't yeah. want to... But we don't need the Chris O'Dowd tangent, right? Keep, keep going, keep going, keep so going. So does this thing kind of fall apart plot-wise? Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. Does it have a good... Does it, does it, have, a good, does it have a good ending? Not really. <laughs> Is it hitting all of the usual trauma tropes? Yeah. <laughs> and a big but. This movie is scary. Mm-hmm. It's short. Yeah. And it is an absolute blast to watch with a group. Is it a tight 90 minutes? Tight 90 minutes. Okay. And it's not available on video VOD yet, but yeah. once it's out, I highly recommend you check it out. It is not breaking any new ground. But it feels like the sort of studio horror that's kind of been missing in the past few years. We've had stuff like uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which I really didn't enjoy. And The Black Phone, which I had really high expectations for and was ultimately a little bit let down. Um, so yeah, I, I, think, I think this is the best studio horror we've had in a few years in terms of like mainstream studio horror. There is an interesting movie that I'm not, I don't know much about right now, but I know that I think it's Paramount who's releasing Apartment 7A, which is a prequel to Rosemary's Baby. Yes. And if they go full on studio horror on that, I, 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 I agree with you. It's normally not the studios that are releasing the horror movies, but I, I'm intrigued by that. I'm intrigued by the boogeyman. As soon as it comes out, um, I will, I will watch it, let you know my thoughts. I gotta be honest. The only thing that intrigued me about the Boogeyman is that the young girl played, or in the movie, is played by Vivian Lyra Blair, who was young Princess Leia in the Obi Wan Kenobi miniseries. <laughs> Never mind. I'm not gonna watch the movie anymore. <laughs> and I think she's she's pretty swell. So maybe I will catch up with it eventually too. All right, that's your number five. Um, it's the it's the only movie on our three list that I have not seen. Next one. Is the I'm the only person who has seen this movie. Indeed, you are. So my number five of the year is Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Now, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. It's written by Guy Ritchie, Ivan. Atkinson, Wait, it was written and directed Davies. by Guy Ritchie. Huh? Guy Ritchie's The Covenant was. I'm giving the other writers you turd. <laughs> All right. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim. So the the premise is we have. Jake Gyllenhaal as an army special forces individual in Afghanistan. Um, Darceline plays an interpreter who is assigned to him. And this interpreter ends up saving his life when he gets knocked unconscious by an attack from the Taliban. And then uh, he ends up taking, like carrying him across multiple mountains to his army base. And then... Gyllenhaal is back home and all he does for multiple multiple weeks in a row is trying he can't adjust to normal life because he he at one point when he realized what the interpreter had done decided that he wants to take him out of the country it, it's it's a very very simple plot in that Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't care about this interpreter he saves his life now he starts caring about it it's like the very very basic human emotions you might expect um, it has great performances it has a simple story, and it's really well-directed. And it's not trying to reinvent the wheel at all. And I'm just sitting there thinking, this is good. 
Like, this is great. And sometimes I, I'm like, the, the genre of war is not necessarily my preferred genre, but I will at least say for it, it's straightforward. And honestly, to get a straightforward, Guy Ritchie makes either really, really fun British capers or randomly he's like, I want to deal with the father facing trauma because his daughter got killed. And I, I don't know why those are like the only two registers that he knows how to work on. But he, at least he's not one note. He's two note. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he also works a lot of like relatively bland Hollywood stuff. But that's neither here nor there. We're talking about Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, of course. Sorry, who's The Covenant? <laughs> uh, Guy Ritchie's Guy Ritchie. The, Guy the Covenant. And yeah, it's it's a good movie. Like I I don't I don't really know what there is exactly to recommend this except you're going to be in for like a good story and good performances and sometimes when movies try to be too ambitious they like miss that i mean come on was talking maverick really reinventing the wheel no it was just awesome and i sat down there and no i don't like this movie more than i like talking maverick but i was thinking i love this movie and so that it as i was going through the year i'm like damn two guy richie's movies that came out this year that i loved and so made my number five I'm just glad this one made the list, not the other one. Cause you I liked had, Operation Fortune. I would have had a lot of questions if that movie <laughs> ended up on your top five list. You liked Operation Fortune. I barely liked Operation Fortune. Talk, talk about bland Hollywood stuff. I mean, the script I of that movie is a couple, a couple scribbles on bar napkins, and Aubrey Plaza just improvising the entire time. And she was amazing. She is by far the best part about that movie. Okay. I will say, I haven't seen The Covenant, but I am very... Sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry, so, oh, so sorry. I haven't seen Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Covenant. Okay, thank, thank you so much. Just double check. Thank you there. so much. But well, what I will say is, I am very happy that Jake Gyllenhaal has moved on from the killing yourself on screen in front of us period of his career, where everyone was deeply concerned about what was going on with him, with the choices and roles he was taking. Uh, between, like, this and Ambulance, seems like he's just back to vibes. Uh, and I'm happy for him. Okay, okay, but I if, know if how... the way in which you're vibing is yelling a lot as you really, really have no purpose left to live, which is basically him in this movie, then, you know, sure, he's back to vibes. Can I... So it's much more similar to Ambulance than I thought. It's much more similar <laughs> to Ambulance. Can I say, does Jake Gyllenhaal in Guy Ritchie's The Covenant... Seem as though he has done a line of cocaine before every single line reading, as he does in Ambulance... A little, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And, and guess what? I'm in. <laughs> Guy Ritchie's The Covenant is now at the top of my watch list. We got to keep that Gyllenhaal train rolling. Um, all right, Scott. It is. It, we're gonna we're gonna go to your number four. We're not gonna do yes. your number five yet. We we share my number five. It we appears do share on your list five. as well, so we're gonna wait on it. But we're gonna jump to my number four, and it's not one that we need to talk too much about because it's Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. I am an absolute mark for these movies. I sat down in the theater expecting to be. Not just entertained, but enthralled, and in fact, I was. I talked about it at length as to why on this very podcast a couple of weeks ago. But I know that in the weeks since it has come out, that Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one, has had some more mixed reviews, some muted reception to it, partly due to its AI villain. Christian, that was one of your big problems with the movie. Yes. Um... And, and due to just a couple of other factors, obviously being a part one, there's something unsatisfying in some ways about the way that it resolves, because there's a lot left undone. But 
I just couldn't resist its charms. I love Tom Cruise pulling off ridiculous stunts, and there's just an absurd amount of beautiful people in this movie. Uh, and I talked a lot about it <laughs> already, so not uh, too much more to say there, but Mission Impossible does make my list. Nick, curious if you had any dead reckoning thoughts, because... You and I saw it together. We did see it together. Speaking of keeping it short and sweet, the only note I had written down for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning was, movies are sick. (laughs) And that was the overwhelming feeling I had leaving the theater, which was... Movies are great, man. Movies are so sick. Movies are sick. (laughs) Tom Cruise is complicated, but he's sick. Tom Cruise is insanely complicated, but... When he's driving a little Fiat through Rome, handcuffed to Haley Atwell, I can't help but cheer. Can't help but cheer. It's amazing. All right. And so, Nick, we now pass it to you for your number four. My number four is a, another little film called Sanctuary. Uh, thank God we still have movies for adults, and <laughs> boy, oh boy, is this a movie only for adults. I was going to say, this is more of a movie for freaks. Really. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Have you seen Sanctuary? No, I okay. wanted to, but wasn't able to. So Sanctuary is the second feature film from director, director Zach Wiggin, who uh, has uh, had a debut in 2014 and then did a short stint. I don't know if he's still writing, but he had a period where he was writing film criticism, um, which is kind of an interesting thing to do when you are... In the midst of having a filmmaking career. It's not something we see done successfully a lot. You don't see a lot of people move either from film criticism to filmmaking or from filmmaking to film criticism back to filmmaking. Uh, But I love this movie. It stars Margaret Qualley and my dog, Christopher Abbott. And they are both batting a thousand in this movie. Um, I don't want to give the plot away. If you've seen the trailer, you have an idea for what you're in for. Uh, But... I saw the trailer multiple times before I saw the movie, and then after I saw the movie, I kind of wish I'd gone in blind, because uh, I felt like it would have enhanced the experience, but what I will say is that this is a one-location movie, yep. takes place over the course of a single night, which is usually... It's a night in the morning. It's a night in the morning. Those movies, specifically one-night movies, are usually a recipe for like an absolute nightmare. Those are rarely ever, I had an amazing night. Um, and this is no different. It's Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott on screen the entire time, and it's this sexy, horrifying, sometimes hilarious cat and mouse game where the roles are constantly flipping, and you kind of don't know who has the upper hand at any given moment uh, because of the setup. It's not going to work for everyone, uh, whether that's because of the subject matter or just the conceit of it kind of feeling like you're watching a play committed to film. Uh, or as my roommate put it, a bad high school play. <laughs> but I had a blast in this, and I one of the things I love is when a director knows how to point a camera, do some cool tricks, and just let your actors chew the scenery. Um, and he does that in this. Chris Abbott and Margaret Qualley are fantastic in this, and are really just getting to, it seems like, have the freedom to make the choices they want to make. Um, it seems like the kind of movie that, as an actor, must be just like a dream job. And uh, yeah, I'm not crazy enough to recommend this as like a first date movie, but like <laughs> third or fourth date in, this you, is going to spark, do, it, this is gonna spark have, an interesting conversation. You do have questionable first date experiences at movies. Are we talking about my experience seeing Evil Dead? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I could wax poetic on that experience for the next hour. It's an utterly insane experience, and I would listen to that hour on the podcast. I would also. um, 
I've seen Sanctuary. I think the directing is really great for being contained to one room. I think that sometimes the writing is forced because I think that there are times when they will leave the room and it feels like they force themselves to go back in just to keep the story going. That was my only issue watching this film. I think that probably has a lot to do with what I was saying about it feeling like a play. Those kind of moments feel less uh, forced when they're on stage because you kind of have an expectation of how lines are going to be delivered yeah. or an idea that this is not the end of the play. Mm -hmm. um, but I completely hear you on that. I, I understand why that could take you out of it. For me, I just, I just loved it. I thought it was so sick and twisted and weirdly romantic and... Yeah, I just, I love this. I don't know why, but it kind of, it, it gave me Ari Aster directorial vibes on like Midsommar. Sure. There's some really neat camera work in here yeah. uh, that is kind of helping set the tone of any given interaction between these two characters. Yes, there is. I've seen, Nick, uh, a lot of people like you give this movie four, four and a half stars. It's up there. And I've also seen a lot of people give it two, two and a half stars. So it seems like one of those where it's, Obviously, for any movie, you know, you're going to get people who like it, love it, dislike it, hate it. But it seems like there are some divergent reactions in this one, and I'm, I'm definitely excited to check it out myself later this year. All right, we're going to move on now to my number three movie of the year, and also your number five movie of the year, Scott. Yes. We're skipping my number four. Indeed we are. Um, now, that movie is Past Lives. So, Scott, why don't you why don't you take the lead on Past Lives right now? Ah, I would be happy to. It is written and directed by Celine Song, who is uh, more of a playwright, so this is her feature film, uh, directorial debut, filmmaking debut. And it stars Greta Lee as a woman, also a writer, named Nora, who has these two significant relationships in her life. One is with Hei Sung, who is played by Taeyo Yu, who is a friend that she grew up with in South Korea and was her first crush. And they had a sort of relationship over the years that was off and on. And while that was off, she ends up getting married to a man named Arthur, who's played by John Magaro. And the film covers three distinct time periods, one from Sung and Nora's past when they're young, one when they're sort of college age and catching up again, and then one where Nora and Arthur are married and Sung comes for a somewhat unexpected visit and it follows their relationship over those three distinct time periods. This movie, I, I don't know why, but I left the movie theater and just thought to myself, I don't know what, I, what to think about this movie. And it is one of the movies that has stayed with me most when I left that theater. It is incredibly romantic. Greta Lee has given one of my favorite performances of the year in this movie. The, the John Magaro performance, I think, is amazing. I think he's absolutely stellar in this. And it's weird in that every time they talk about, like, past lives, every time they talk about the the... Uh, is it Inyun? Yeah, there's this Korean concept of Inyun where it's supposed to indicate that you and another person have maybe met in a past life. And so people who are friends could have could have rubbed shoulders 
in a past life. That's that's it. They passed each other on the street. Now they're friends, and maybe in a future life they'll be mortal enemies, or or, or they'll be fallen in love and have a family full of kids. You know, it, it's that's the concept that they're talking about. But what I also loved is that they don't, despite them talking about this concept, they're not really bought into this concept. It's not the idea of what we did in a past life. It's the idea of what is the possibility that we could choose to explore here and are we choosing to explore it? It's it's deeply, deeply also sad in terms of to choose one means you have to let the other one go. It's really funny. Like when they're having the conversation in Korean and he's Arthur's just there in the background just like looking around and I go, I, I, I laughed. I was laughing. I'm like, this sucks for this dude. But it's also one of those, man, I wonder what I would do in that situation. Kind of a movie. And I don't always get those kinds of movies or the ones that make me think so internally because, you know, if, 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 if you get a crush on two girls at the same time, which one do you pursue and how deeply do you think about am I choosing the right girl to pursue? And this, of course, comes from just our, the three men who are here. <laughs> Substitute in your, your sexuality of preference. But also, man, how, like, how does this love balance out with your career? How does a potential love balance out with your career? How does a potential love balance out with the place that you live in? And so that's, that's why it's my number three. Nick, you were talking about Sanctuary and how it's decidedly a movie for adults. And obviously with some of the content and the, the atmosphere of that movie, that's why. But Past Lives, I've heard called a movie for adults quite a bit as well. And that's because it's, you know, it's really a romantic drama. And those movies don't get made in the mainstream necessarily right now. It, it, it's one of the things that the big budget action movies and superhero movies are stuck in the air out of in terms of box office opportunities but past lives is a real throwback in that way and christian like you're talking about it has these questions that it leaves you thinking about <laughs> and i saw this on a double date with my wife it was so fun to talk with the other couple that we saw it with and make jokes about each other's in and how we must have <laughs> known each other in past lives but also just to to sit back and, and be totally bowled over by this story of these people and to wrestle with the very real questions of if one thing goes different about my life am I on a completely different trajectory this person that I'm married to is there a world out there where we never even met or, or there's a world where we broke up or where this person that I thought was the one but we we moved away when we were young or whatever like where they were the one and it is it is a deep movie that really does leave you sitting with and talking about those questions. And it's such a satisfying experience for that reason. And I think, too, one thing I really appreciated about this being Celine Song's directorial debut is she's, that she also has a really good eye for imagery as well, which is not always something that translates for writers or playwrights who are making their directorial debuts. But she captures these little moments uh, throughout the movie that really, you know, that made, stood out to me in the moment, but a couple that have really stuck with me. Uh, one being this moment where Nora and Sung have met once again, they're adults, and they're reflecting back to this day that they had at a park when they were kids. And you see this sort of quick cut back to the, their two little heads poking through these statues, and they're statues of 
heads. Almost as if to suggest that in the heads of these grown-up people, there's still these two little kids who wish that they never moved away from each other and had always known each other. And it's it's making me a little bit emotional just thinking about it. <laughs> um, yeah, if you get the chance to see Past Lives, I would really, really encourage you to do it. It's a movie that I can definitely see actually ticking up my list, uh, depending on how the rest of the year shakes out. And I really would like to see it again before the end of the year. Nick, do you have any thoughts on it that you wanted to mention before we move on? I'm coming in like Oppenheimer right now. <laughs> you guys are making a really compelling case for this movie. I'm, I'm like moved hearing you guys speak about this in the manner you did. Tell me you hate it. Tell me you hate it. I do Tell not. Tell me you hate it. I do not hate it. Okay. I wanted to like this movie. And it is the kind of movie that I'm typically really drawn to. Okay. Um, romantic dramas are just... I, crying every time I watch one, just deeply moved. But this, I didn't totally, like, I, I never felt totally immersed in that, and I'm gonna say this, I, I really wanted sweet tart tropes at the movie theater when I was watching this, and for the first hour of the movie, I was like, am I gonna spend $7 on the sweet tart ropes? I don't know if I wanna spend that. And then about an hour in, I went, okay, I need this to get through the second half, I'm gonna go get sweet tart ropes. And I walked uh, over to the uh, candy section at my local AMC, and they did not have sweet tart ropes. And I got a pack of peanut M&Ms. You know what? Actually, sorry. I got a pack of regular M&Ms. You went from wanting sweet tart ropes to leaving with M&Ms? I fumbled the decision. <laughs> and I walked back in that theater, and I sat down with the M&Ms, and I thought to myself, I should have got peanut M&Ms. And... It is so silly. It is so silly. But I really think that that being on my mind for such a long time didn't allow me to fully immerse myself in this movie. Now, what I will say is... Movies I'm, are dead. Movies are dead. <laughs> I am definitely Give going... Up. I'm definitely going to rewatch this. Over. I think... I have a feeling I'm going to like it way more on rewatch. And brilliant performances. Really well shot. Like, such tasteful direction. Through this whole thing and when you rewatch it, when you rewatch it with sweet tarts, uh, you know it. Um, and also, we didn't talk about it. Maybe the best ending of any movie this year. When she walks that, back from the car, that last—I mean, that that entire last interaction at the car, and when she walks back, is just like oh. The the image that is burned in my mind is her. It, it it's the when they turn to Arthur when the other two are speaking in Korean and it's when she's walking back from the car because I think the 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 Thleen song has shown such great strength in showing people crippled under the weight of their own minds. Yeah. Like what could possibly be happening. And that um, I'm actually deeply sad right now because of everything that you've just said, Nick. So we're going to move on. Okay, uh, last, last thought. Arthur is just a better man than I. Just taking getting cucked, like, on the chin for the last 45 minutes of this movie. Uh, yeah. I'm going to rewatch this. It's a, it's a powerful example of trusting your spouse <laughs> and open communication. Yes. Uh, and Nick, you've given us a friendly reminder that sometimes the conditions in which we watch movies are just as important as the movie itself. So true. And we're going to move on to your number three now. My number three is a film called Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Scott, have you seen this movie? I wanted to desperately, and I, once again, have missed a movie on Nick's list. I did intentionally watch a movie that appears higher on your list 
And we will get to, get to that. I did not get to this one yet, though, but I really want to see it as well. So this is, like, maybe the feel-good movie of the year. Uh, it's Kelly Fremont Craig's second feature film following 2014's Edge of Seventeen. And I think we've got our next great coming-of-age director. Um, it's based on a Judy Bloom book of the same name, and it follows an 11-year-old girl named Margaret whose family moves from New York City to the suburbs of New Jersey and follows her tumultuous experience of not only moving to a new city and having to make new friends, but also coming into adolescence and having to navigate that and grappling with religion as she has a Christian mom and a Jewish father. Um, and in my opinion, this is the most well-cast movie of the year. Uh, we've got Abby Ryder Fortson, who plays Margaret, and she gives such a like lived-in, authentic performance. It makes you laugh, and it really hurts your heart at times watching her go through the experience of growing up. Um, but for me, the thing that separated this from your run-of-the-mill coming-of-age movies uh, is the casting and the performance of the adults. So you've got Rachel McAdams as Margaret's mother, mm -hmm. you've got Benny Safdie yes, you as her father, and you've got the great Kathy Bates as her grandmother. And guess what, guys? What? They're all wonderful. <laughs> they managed to give like really layered, real performances that enhance the world building. Um, almost every one of Kathy Bates' lines in my screening got like laugh out loud response. Um, and Rachel McAdams takes a character that in the book doesn't necessarily have a lot of nuance and paints a picture of how complicated being an adult and a wife and a mom is uh, and I love how kind of the, the struggles Rachel McAdams is having at the house are paralleled with what Margaret is going through and although they're dealing with completely different problems you're watching two people at two completely different stages of their lives like trying to just figure out how to be and like how they should act um, there's some really interesting kind of comments on religion happening in this movie uh, as one of the main devices is that, as given away in the title, uh, Margaret is praying to God for various things every night. And she really wants a him. period. She really wants, and she really wants, wants boobs. She really wants boobs. She really wants boobs. And uh, yeah, I just I love this movie. I can't say enough nice things about it. Like, mm. I can't wait to rewatch it. Um, yeah, check this one out. It's out on VOD. It's not available for streaming anywhere, but go watch it. Mm. Christian, mm -hmm. a movie that at least according to Letterboxd you had a more muted reaction to than Nick. So curious what your hangups were. This is not the first time this has happened on this episode. So just curious what your your sort of obviously you didn't dislike the movie it seems, but you know, what what held you back? Rachel McAdams I loved. Kathy Bates I really liked. And couldn't care about anything else. And, and there was a time where I'm like, okay, I know I'm not a middle school-aged girl. Maybe there are just some things. And then I, I just didn't care about her or her friends. <laughs> Like at all, and Christian, I. Christian's favorite thing is to not care about characters. I, I tisk, tisk. just dissing I, children on the regular. Hundred percent. Benny Safdie, I actively rooted against. No. I actively rooted against him. Oh, I loved him in this film. And it, it's it's like honestly, like the script is not bad at all. The directing is not bad at all. It just felt like it was portraying really interesting characters in Rachel McAdams and Kathy Bates and then focusing in on the child and I get 
that that is what the book is about. But to me, the more compelling stories about how difficult the transition was and how difficult it was to manage her life was Rachel McAdams' character. And when I see her and then she goes away the entire time, I'm thinking, when's she coming back? When's she coming back? When she's back, when's she coming back? When's she coming back? She's back, when's she coming back? And I can't, I, I, I took that as my barometer for, okay, I just was not a huge fan of the movie. I liked it, I think it's well made, but it, it, it's, it was not my thing. Well, I'll have to see it myself and see where I land. If The Edge of Seventeen is any, uh, any guidance or any predictive possibilities, I will be a big fan of our either guidance me Margaret. So Christian, we now go back to your list. Okay, so my number two, my number two, my number two is Scream 6. Scream 6, it was written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. It was directed by, um, what is their, their, their Radio friend? Silence. Radio Silence, which is a team composed of Tyler Gillette and Matt Batinelli Open. Guys, Scream 6, I was cheering the entire time. I loved the opening. The opening where the killer reveals his face because you realize it's not the actual ghost face that we're going to. I loved all of the dynamics in between the characters. I loved the commentary that they were doing and understanding that this is a franchise that has been going on for a while and therefore it is going to get easy to get hung up on several of the different things. I actually thought Ghostface was scary. And I don't, like, sometimes, I love all of the Scream movies. I don't always love them because of Ghostface, but man, was Ghostface actually scary in this movie. He uses a shotgun, and it's <laughs> amazing. The subtle directorial tricks in order to, like, lead you off of who you think Ghostface is going to be, the actual reveal of Ghostface at the very end, the performances about everything, the fact that everyone here seems to have superhuman strength because none of them died, um, it, it is amazing. And I am wearing my Scream 6 shirt right now because I think, Scott, like, I kept teasing the entire year about how much I love Scream 6. I just don't think you believed I would have it as high as I do right now. Um, I, I don't know if you specifically indicated it would be on this particular list, but I know you were a fan. We saw it together, and I also think this movie totally rules. Like, I love it's it. so good. It's so good. Nick ruined me right now. Come on. You have thoughts. You have thoughts. Say them. So, this is one of my favorite film franchises, um, and I got really excited for this movie, and I did not like this movie. I think, like you said, the opening is great. I think one of the best things they did with this movie is, like you said, making Ghostface actually scary. Because historically, he's such a goofy villain. He's stumbling. He falls a lot. He falls a lot. He's always stumbling around and falling over things. I think that's great. I think the performances are fun. Um, I think the move to New York is actually kind of a fun uh, change of scenery. I guessed the twist in this movie about, what, 35, 40 minutes in. I leaned over to my roommate and said, here's the ending of the movie. And I'm bad at that. Like, I am not the kind of person who can normally see where a movie's going. But that wasn't my biggest complaint with the movie, is that I saw it coming. My biggest complaint that I understand that the meta-ness of the Scream universe is a key element of the films. And up until now, I have pretty much always enjoyed it. This movie really bothered me with how hard it seemed like it was trying to get the audience to go like, hey, I know that one movie rule that they're talking about. I couldn't get past it. It just took me out of it. That's weird to me because it actually feels like they toned down the meta-ness. 
See, but there's a, there's something about the references that are taking place in when the franchise starts in the 90s and as it goes into the 2000s. I don't know if for me the internet has ruined it, but we all have the same cultural reference points now and we all talk about the same things and it just when when we do that in movies now, when you take yourself out of it and start making it super meta, it just starts to feel kind of inauthentic to me and reminds me that like I go on Twitter for hours a day on my phone. <laughs> and I don't want to feel that when I'm in a movie. I don't want to be reminded that there are there are Things that we all can agree are common movie rules and things like that. And uh, I'm I'm in the minority with the Scream franchise of thinking like Scream Three is the second best of the franchise. Um, but I left this movie thinking, is it time to kill the franchise? Time to be done? No, I, it's not. <laughs> no, I I disagree. I we, I watched Scream for the very first time for this show back in October. And I loved it so much. I knew I wanted to see this in theaters when it came out. And I watched the next four movies in this span of... Mm-hmm. Uh, we watched in October. This movie came out in March. So, between that. And I will say, this ended up being... Uh, Scream 5 and now Scream 6 are right after the first one for me. I think the, the original Scream sequels have their moments and are, are very fun. I think Scream 2 was the low point. But nothing for saying it's also my least favorite, yeah. Nothing will approach the original, but I think these last two have been a really invigorating new direction. And I say this as a fan of this franchise for less than a year, but have been very invigorating with what what it could have been doing. Um, I will say that the leads also, like in yeah. Jenna Ortega and Melissa Melissa Barrera kills it in she's, this movie. She's, she's fantastic. Okay. Yes. Guys, the double stabbing at the end of this movie of Mason Gooding's character. What are we doing? That that is that's he lived so great. He no, lived that's so great. No, so great. No, it's not. Great. He, he, <laughs> I, I, I like his character. He was stabbed so Courtney many times. Cox's scene. Courtney Cox's scene was fun. Courtney Cox's scene was so fun. <laughs> but like, I just I couldn't get past that. It. Was I thought I think that was intentionally supposed to be funny. I'm sure it was. But. I think the problem is that you could feel them sort of pulling their punches here, which you have not necessarily felt that in the past. What do you mean pulling their punches? The stabbings were so vicious. And care. they lived. survived. That's the thing. Is but that like, that's, that's the funny part. That's not funny, though. <laughs> like that's I still so really enjoyed funny. this movie. Less than Christian, more than Nick. But I do think some elements of the ending were people who are surviving who shouldn't be, at least as... Other, they have been previous screen movies. I just, it, it took me took me out a little bit, but it didn't sink the movie for me. All right, Scott, let's move on to your number one. We're jumping all the way to my number one, and I'm checking as to why. But it's because my number three is your number one, and my number two is Nick's number one, and your number four. Yes. So now I get to uh, speak uh, eloquently on the masterpiece of film that is John Wick Chapter Four. And if you have been listening to this podcast, you know that I'm a massive fan of the John Wick franchise. It is directed, as with all other installments, by Chad Stahelski and written by him. And actually, not written by him this go-around. Written by Shea Hatton and Michael Finch. And of course, Keanu Reeves is along for the ride as John Wick for the fourth time. And he is almost the auteur of the franchise. He's not quite at Tom Cruise's level of producing these movies. He's an executive producer, but he and his essence are so key to Chapter 4. I mean, as he is with the other movies here, but 
If you have not seen the John Wick movies, did we talk about it on the show, Christian? We've talked about the first John Wick on the show. Just the first one. Ah, oh, I haven't even talked about John Wick chapter four of the show. Wow, it's amazing to be. Well, here. we did, we did, we did, we did. At the, it was like one of the first episodes we released this year. Oh, we that's did right. like half Oscars retrospective, half John Wick chapter that's four. That's right. We did a mini review of chapter four. That's right. So you can go find some of my more detailed thoughts on it back then, but. Chapter 4, to me, was a bit of a return to form for the franchise. I think Chapter 3 was the low point, a movie that I liked, but unlike the others, did not love. And Chapter 4 really brings it back with some unbelievable set pieces. I, I think it approaches Mission Impossible Fallout levels of instantly iconic scenes for action movies of this era. The, the massive fight in the Osaka Continental, which of course is this hotel chain in the Wake universe is incredibly entertaining and it's the end of the first section of the movie really and then we go off on many more adventures uh, i think this is one of reeves just best moments as an action star where the the way that stahelski shoots these movies and is so committed to not chopping the hell out of the movie but letting the stunt performers work and stahelski of course is a former stunt uh, stunt double, stunt performer, and stunt coordinator, now directing movies. Really, I uh, know that he sees value in that and some of the behind-the-scenes information uh, about this movie and the commitment of the stunt performers is just delightful. I actually had the opportunity to go to France with my in-laws on a trip this summer, and we did spend a few days in Paris. And while we were there, I made a pilgrimage to Sacré-Cœur, where the <laughs> ending of this movie takes place, and did climb up the steps and spend the whole way up talking to them about how there is a stunt double who fell down the stairs and actually fell all the way down, which is the cut that they used in the movie. Isn't that so cool? I, I just think that John Wick, similar to my love for Mission Impossible, as an action franchise that is committed to practical filmmaking, stunt performers putting everything they have into their work and a star in the middle who is as humble as they come and as and as committed to also participating at that high level is just so immensely satisfying when it's pulled off this well and i think seeing this movie twice in theaters really cemented some of these action sequences for me in terms of stuff that's just going to stay with me in terms of my favorite moments in movies from 2023 when I'm sure I'll be looking back on the year. So, John Wick Chapter 4, my favorite of the year so far. Don't know if you guys have, have thoughts you need to share, need to, need to break me down or build me up. I don't know, but... I've, I've, the, one of the happiest I made, Scott, was when I said that it was in my top ten. It didn't make my top five, but it's 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 definitely one of the best movies that has come out this year. We had a knockdown dragout fight about the original John Wick, Which so that is, was real redemption. <laughs> come a long way. I, I, I still think that movie is fun and nothing more. And I think one of the things that I liked about this movie that none of the other movies has been able to do is that the, like there are so few lines of dialogue. There's like, what, a thousand words in the script? And it's all about the action. And I go, yeah. I mean, Bill Skarsgård as the villain here, who's fantastic, very yeah. wolf-like, and his portrayal of the Marquis, this French villain... He is the wordiest, and the wordiest. I think that's intentional. He is the villain who's constantly talking, whereas Wick and some of his other co you know, his, his collaborators, shall we call them, are more motivated by action, as you say, Christian. So definitely a nice little touch there from a writing perspective. Nick, I know that you had a chance to see some of this movie. I saw some of this movie. So I got home very late from a session last night, rolled in about 1 a.m. and said, 
we've got the pod tomorrow. I gotta choose between Guy Ritchie's The Covenant <laughs> and John Wick Chapter Four to uh, try and get in before the pod. And uh, I went with John Wick Chapter Four. I made it about an hour and a half in before my eyes began to close, and I woke up at some point, and things were happening, and I hit pause. Yeah, this is a beast of a movie. It um, it approaches three hours when the it's others like two forty. It is it's one hundred and seventy minutes, and oh, so the, yeah. yeah. The first movie is an hour 40, the next two are around two hours. So yeah. this one is, it's, it's a big one. So I, like you, Scott, was, John Wick Chapter 3 was definitely the low point of the series for me thus far, um, but from what I saw of John Wick Chapter 4, gets an oh yeah from me. So fun. Um, yeah, I, I, and this is, this statement is hypocritical and in direct contrast to kind of what my complaints about Scream were, but especially with like an action franchise. Once we get to the fourth installment, like, logic can go out the window. Like, I don't need coherence in terms of, like, moment-to-moment logic. Just, like, show me a good time. And from what I saw, this movie is showing me a real good time. One of the best details of the John Wick universe is that somewhere along the way, some crazy person invented bulletproof suits. (laughs) And so... There are moments in prior Wick films where he's able to sort of hide behind his suit jacket when he's out from cover and people are shooting at him. But in John Wick Chapter 4, the henchmen start getting bulletproof suits, and maybe they did in 3, and I'm just forgetting it, but there are scenes where people are running around, like these big hulking stunt people are running around, ducking behind their suits, like peeking out and shooting each other as they run around the room. And it, it's almost like Looney Tunes. Like, that's how ridiculous it gets. And Donnie Yen also enters the franchise playing a blind assassin. And he is he is actually a Looney Tunes character just ripped from the cartoons and plopped into this movie. Uh, I mean, they really are leaning into some of the silliness, this but is, doing it with a completely straight face. Yeah. John Wick has no bones anymore. Where are his bones? No, he does not. No, it's, he it's has just, no bones. He's invincible. And let me tell you something. Neither does Keanu Reeves the actual man. He's made of metal. John, John Wick, the character, certainly falls off a lot of things in this movie. And he is Keanu Reeves' age, which is, he's, he is in his 50s. So it's just, I don't know why they thought that John Wick needed to fall off of tall buildings all the time. But again, they're, they're playing around with silliness and, and playing it straight and having a great time doing it. So John Wick Chapter 4, if you've not caught up with the Wick films, I encourage you to do it. This one, it might be the best. All right, uh, Nick, you tried to fit in John Wick Chapter 4 at 1 in the morning for me, which was a choice. I fit in this next film, your number two of the year, at 6.30 in the morning, and I have zero regrets. So, fire away with your number two. I love to hear it. My number two is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Uh, I don't know what it says about me that two of my favorite movies of the year uh, center around bombs, and I'm hoping I don't end up on a watch list for the effusive praise I'm about to give this movie. Uh, But this is one of the best films of the year, in my opinion. Um, It's the second film from director Daniel Goldhaber, who previously directed Cam back in 2018, uh, and was, again, one of my favorite horror movies of that year. And this isn't a horror movie, but my God, does the tension this builds like make it feel like one? It's a true blue thriller. Yes, it is. It yes, really start is. to finish. Um, so the film follows a group of environmental activists who come together to execute a plan to blow up an oil pipeline in Texas as a sort of like act of radical defiance. And it is where you're from. Where I'm from, yes. Um, it is truly like an ensemble movie. Um, 
characters have moments where they're really getting a chance to shine, but uh, as the main plot is unfolding, we're also getting glimpses into kind of the backstories of the characters and what led them to each other and what led them to the point that they're at now ideologically. Um, and to that point, I think it is the most well-edited movie of the year. It's just like perfectly paced. Uh, I had my hoodie pulled over my face for large swaths of this movie. Um, and I love it. This also has a few tricks up its sleeve in terms of the plot points that kind of make the, the first watch of it especially really rewarding. I 100% agree right yeah. now. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the kind of movie that refuses to separate the politics from the people who the politics are affecting. Um, and it's the kind of movie that I, I really do think like in 10 years and 20 years, people will look back on this movie, whether or not it has any cultural relevance people when they see this will think a it was timely it's definitely complicated but it feels really earnest and like it is getting at something that i think a lot of times culturally feels like it is almost too taboo of an idea to confront head on and it's not afraid to do that um so yeah it also just works as like a plain old movie like take out take out again separate the ideology of it which the film doesn't really allow you to do but if you just view it from a from a thousand foot view it just works as a thriller um so yeah i plot moves forward characters are interesting and great conclusion i, I really recommend you check this out they use this device of flashing back to before the you know the plan to blow the pipeline where it focuses in on one or two of the characters and so you start to get to know them as this big group, but then you start seeing their backstories. And the way they weave those in and out mm -hmm. of the, the narrative in general works flawlessly. The, and the way, that, the way that they say the final flashback for the end, it's one of those where you're just not expecting this movie to end like a, wait, what, wait, what, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> it just, it works magically. It, 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 it's working really, really well. Um, it, it like you said, it's really, really well edited, and it, it's just shot beautifully. It it really is. Now, looking at it, um, is it perfect? No, but it's so intriguing in how it's trying to bring you in and understand that they do not all share the same ideology, and that is I. People have been comparing this movie or like part of this movie to Ocean's Eleven. It's not at all like Ocean's Eleven. It's not at all like bringing the gang together like Ocean's Eleven. And the bringing the gang together is more like pulling teeth in order to get people to agree that this is the least evil of all of the evils because what they're doing isn't necessarily correct, but it's the least evil thing. And so it, it's a really good recommendation, man. Yeah. I love the character of Dwayne, who plays the, the man from Texas. I love Dwayne. Yeah. I think it's so, I just think it's so brilliant. Again, like you were talking about, not all of them share the same ideology. They have ended up at the same point and come to the same conclusion that this is the correct course of action. But a character like him is really important to have in this, which is a dude that you would not expect on the surface to be down with the mission of the film. But that's where the circumstances have led him. It's personal for him. And I think what is also interesting about Dwayne is that 
for a lot of these people, you know, you could judge books by covers and say like, oh, the, you know, the young activist student of color on a college campus, like, of course, that you know, they're going to, they're going to get to the point where they want to do this. But Dwayne is, uh, he is a white guy from Texas. <laughs> He's not in college. Mm-hmm. And he has been wronged just like these other people, most of them have sort of a specific wrong that happened to them that is motivating them to this particular plan. Um, and Dwayne is, is no different. And you can't see how, if it were any other issue, you can see how Dwayne might be on the opposite side of yep, things sure. from, from the group. But with this, this specific, specific thing, one. that's what pulled him in. It, it, it is so fascinating to think about these people and what would it be like if they were not meeting about environmental issues? They were meeting about, uh, you know, gay rights. Yeah. Or they were meeting about tax reform. <laughs> like, where would they land? But with, with this specific oil pipeline, it is what pulls him in. It, it's a fascinating way of, of building this group of, uh, of people together. Mm-hmm. Scott, this is your number three movie of the year. And it's your number one of the year. It is my number one movie of the year, and that is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So this one, written by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Dave Callahan. It is directed by Joaquin Dos Santos, Ken Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. This movie, it's it's the second installment after Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse came out in 2018. This movie... It, um, and I'm just going to admit this. I liked Into the Spider-Verse. I wasn't as blown away as everyone else was about Into the Spider-Verse. I'm sitting in the movie theater thinking the game of animation has changed. Like, whatever we thought animation was, is it is not so anymore. Um, part of that is for a couple reasons. Some of those are really bad reasons. They have overworked their visual effects artists. Like, I can't, I can't keep going with what I'm saying without saying, you know what, these are not the best conditions that people are working in to get this. This is a beautiful movie. This is a beautiful movie with beautifully drawn characters, with wonderful story arcs and motivations, with a villain who does not appear to be the best villain and gets an incredible arc and creation into being one of the scariest things. I was, like... The spot genuinely looked scary by the end, especially when he's fully black with the white scribbles. That's a ter- That's a thing from kids' nightmares right there. Um, Gwen's entire relationship with Miles, the, the uh, mother-son and father-son relationship that he has, the entire idea of a canon event, how this is also giving commentary on the, super, uh, the superhero movies we've been having recently. The, the voice acting across the board and it, I, I left that thinking, damn, that was amazing. And then I, I give it a couple of days, normally before I start to look at my list and start to think where would this fit it. And I go, this is, this is by far the best movie that I've seen this year. This is by far the best movie that I've seen this year. I don't know when um, Beyond the Spider-Verse is going to come out. Definitely not next year because the strikes have impacted how they've been able to voice record. Maybe it'll be the year after. I don't care, but I'm in. Because um, do these writers know what they're doing? Yes. Do these directors know how it is to present the story? Yes. Do these animators know what they're doing? Absolutely. Do these voice actors care? Absolutely. Let me give it off. 
Number three on my list also, so no complaints here. And like you said, the animation and the look of this movie is unbelievable. It is unlike anything I've ever seen. And you can already start to see this series influence with a movie like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Meet Mayhem that came out earlier this year and the visual look of that movie. It definitely feels like something that they felt empowered to do with the success of Into the Spider-Verse and now Across the Spider-Verse. It, I especially think of the scenes in Gwen Stacy's home universe. Of course, this is a multiversal story, like a lot of superhero stories have gotten to these days, but it's done pretty well, in my opinion, as you can guess. And the Gwen Stacy's home universe being so, like, it's like watercolors. It's so expressive, and there's no insistence on realism when it comes to depicting where she's coming from, which is a far more creative use of the multiverse than we've gotten in some other Marvel projects. And again, from a visuals alone perspective, this movie would probably be on my top five list if it was just a silent movie and the, like, there was no voice acting in the story, you had to guess by actions only. But like you said, Christian, I think this is a just a phenomenally performed movie. Oscar Isaac coming in as Spider-Man 2099, I think is an excellent performance uh, from behind the, the microphone there. And yes, it is also a part one. It's a movie that ends on a cliffhanger, but it leaves you with such a, a bomb where you're just sitting there wondering, oh my gosh, what happens next? I have to know. <laughs> and we have to wait for uh, hopefully a couple of years. And, and like you mentioned, Christian, hopefully they're not going to work the people who made this movie into overdrive again <laughs> to get the sequel made. But Nick, this was the movie that was left off of your list because yeah. it was on both of ours and to highlight some other movies, right? So This would definitely be up at the very top of my list uh, if I didn't have other movies I wanted to discuss and knew that this would come up in conversation. Um, it is remarkable to me that when the first film came out, everybody said they have reset the playing field for what you can do with animated film. And somehow they did it again with this one. They improved upon it and expanded upon it and just made something that you kind of... It's one of those movies where you almost feel the need to rewatch it because you know there are a thousand things in every frame that you're not picking up on. I mean, apparently they released different versions of the movie in the theaters where there were minor differences yes. that people started noticing on rewatch. No, totally. I, I, and that's complicated for other reasons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I it, it's, it is a two and a half hour movie that as we approached the two and a half hour mark, I thought to myself, we can just keep going. <laughs> like, I, we'll stay here for another two and a half. Yeah. Um, okay. And yeah, just like, what a huge achievement. Um, I can't wait to rewatch this one. The score, also, yeah. by Daniel Pemberton, one of the best of the year. And, I hope and the gets... soundtrack. Yeah. The soundtrack rocked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, musically fantastic. And now I'm thinking about Spider Punk, how they animated him, yes, how his so whole sick. aesthetic is is like truly punk. Yeah, yeah, like it's so much about this movie rules from the the details to the big picture. It's I'm I'm happy to see it on two of our lists officially and one unofficially. It, it's yeah, one of my favorites of the year for sure. Now we have one movie that is on three all three of our lists. Before we get there. I'm going to shout out just a couple of things from this poll that I sent out. Um, some of these responses... Oh, my sister wrote in. My sister said her favorite movie of the year so far is Barbie. Let's go. A movie that has not been on either of our... It's none of our lists. Off mine. It's barely off mine. It's up there. Three men who chose not to put Barbie on their list. 
We didn't have enough Kenergy. It was too sad. <laughs> um, we have Micah and also the Hollywood Week podcast both putting in saying that it's Oppenheimer. We have Bailey saying that it is Across the Spider-Verse. So some agreement there then. Uh, oh, also mutual friend Jordan Brown who said Spider-Verse also. And uh, lastly, Anya, who says that it's John Wick Chapter 4. Let's go! Represent. Let's go, Anya! Yes! John Wick, represent. Now, the last movie, it is my number four, it is your number two, Nick, it is your number one, and it is Oppenheimer. Indeed it is. Scott, I'm going to let you introduce Oppenheimer. In case you missed our episode about it just a couple of weeks ago, Oppenheimer, of course, is the smash hit from Christopher Nolan about J. Robert Oppenheimer, the the theoretical physicist who was the director of the Manhattan Project, following his life before, during, and after the project, featuring a massive ensemble cast, an extraordinary amount of Hollywood actors that you will definitely know and some faces you may recognize, uh, primarily led by Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss, this politician who becomes involved in Oppenheimer's life. Matt Damon as General Groves, the army, um, the army general leading the Manhattan Project, and Emily Blunt playing Kitty Oppenheimer, the wife to J. Robert. So, Nick, I want to turn to you because Christian and I, again, we just talked about this movie at length on the show recently. Would love to know why this has landed at number one for you. So I've had the pleasure of seeing this twice, both times on IMAX and 70mm. Um, the first time I went to Universal City Walk, which is one of the only true, in air quotations, IMAX theaters in Those the state. Those seats are so uncomfortable. Oh, see, but there's something about that auditorium that I, I've never felt smaller in a theater than I do seeing something That's in true. IMAX at City Walk. It is massive. And it's the perfect place to see a movie like this. Um, for my money, it is the most well-written of any of the Chris Nolan movies thus far. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the complaints about Chris Nolan movies have to do with the writing. A lot of it's in the dialogue. Obviously, people have um, issues with some of the logical jumps that he makes, um, having you know, lots of kind of sci-fi-adjacent things in his uh, work thus far. But this movie, I have a feeling it's going to show up in every eligible category at the Academy Awards. This is going to be a big winner, in my opinion. Um, Ludwig Korensen taking the throne from Hans Zimmer? He's, are we do, are, we, are we ready to say this? He's cooking. cooking. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable score. Um, back to theater experiences, my second time seeing this movie, um, as, I was at the, the Chinese theaters, and as uh, Oppenheimer approached Los Alamos uh, for the first time as the, the project is finally underway, uh, the screen faded to black. And I saw, that, that didn't happen the last time I saw this. And the lights came up in the theater. And a man had fallen and hit his head. And he had a medical emergency. Oh, so gosh. we had about a 35-minute intermission in my second viewing of Oppenheimer. Oh, uh, do I wish I had gotten a refund? Sure. Do I hope that man is well? So much so. Uh, and I'll say, sign of a good movie. Didn't really take me out. The second that the lights were off and it was back on, I was back in. Speaking of early morning movie experiences for me, I also saw this at the Chinese Theater and I saw it at 6 a.m. 
It's a lot to take I in. I woke up at 5 a.m. to drive to Hollywood and see this movie, and that theater was far from empty. I just, I loved being out there with the, the true blue weirdos going to see this at 6 a.m. to catch IMAX 70 millimeter. I'm, I'm watching it for the third time this upcoming Friday. Awesome. I, I, I don't know, like, if after this, a third viewing, it'll climb up my list. I... It's a movie that definitely does not get worse on repeat viewings. No. It, it, it's weird in that you keep noticing different things. Um, since we've already talked about this movie at length, let's just highlight some of the things. Um, Killian Murphy, I've decided, is my favorite performance because he is doing something otherworldly with how he has transformed, with how he has taken on the mannerisms, with how he's kind of a wimp at times um robert downey jr yes is incredible but i'm much more impressed with how robert downey jr's character when louis strauss was written yeah the the way in which you kind of think he's going to be either a hero or just like a person offering a different perspective until the switch like the flip happens the i mean yes yes the best scene in this movie is the trinity test it is it is it like that's that's what i paid my money for that's, that's what i paid money to see the the minutes of silence after the bomb goes off and everyone starts realizing what happened and you get all those little moments of the different scientists and other characters reacting before that wave of explosive energy rushes over them and the sound comes roaring back in the theater (laughs) it's just it unbelievable uh, especially when you're experiencing it at what must have been 7.45 or 8 a.m. <laughs> but, I, yeah. I also love the moment where Matt Damon comes to the understanding that there's a chance that they ignite the atmosphere <laughs> and the, and the look on his face when he realizes that it's a, it's a very low possibility but it's not zero <laughs> which is like he says is what he would prefer can um, I just say this is my favorite Matt Damon performance in a long time he's great in this I, I mean, thought he was great in Air as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I also love Damon in Air. And that's just a a feature-length Matt Damon performance, because here he, it's a three-hour movie in which he probably has 20 to 30 minutes of screen time, because there's just such an expansive cast. And him in Air is it's classic, it's a classic movie, or classical movie. It's about guys in boardrooms making about guys movies. being dudes, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and Damon is in classic Damon mode in it, so. Um, the... Oh, what was I going to say? The, what are, Benny Safdie in this movie I liked. <laughs> okay, I couldn't be more on the other side from you with this Benny Safdie issue because, again, I loved him in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and liked him in this, but, uh... You didn't like I, the accent? The accent! I mean, come on, man! What are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> I What's love going it. on there? Okay, what, what about Kenneth Branagh's accent? I liked him. I mean, I have a Kenneth Branagh problem, but that's that's <laughs> that could be a whole separate podcast on its own. My Kenneth Branagh problem, hosted by Nick. Mike. Yes, I, I Branagh is sort of a chameleon. Like he's done so many different accents on film uh, that I I was honestly impressed at, at his Niels Bohr uh, impersonation. I have to say, it's just funny to me that in Nolan casting as many people as he did was like, no, we need Benny Safdie to play this Hungarian scientist. <laughs> Which, like, I'm glad that Benny Safdie was in the movie. I think he's really good. But it's also just funny to me, because there is a... This is a predominantly American and English or English-speaking cast, but there are some international actors who do appear. 
uh, especially when they're playing a scientist of that nationality. And so it's just funny that Benny Safdie is here playing. Uh, I'm forgetting his name. I have to find it. But Benny okay. Safdie taking a, a step back from directing, which is interesting, kind of pursuing the acting career. Yeah. They're supposedly, the Safdie brothers supposedly are going to make another movie with Adam Sandler. Well, he, he pulled out of the project. Really? Yeah, so Josh is going to direct that solo. Um, Interesting. And be- before we reach the conclusion, I just want to say, I had a scene my first time watching that was easily my favorite scene in the movie. And second time around, I was waiting for it to come back, and it came back around, and it did not disappoint. And it's the speech he gives after the bombing has taken place. Oh, in the auditorium? When for the first time in the runtime of the movie, it becomes surreal. Yeah. And spoiler alert, but the background starts to shake behind him. And he looks out into the crowd, and they're all cheering for him. And the foots are stomping. And he begins to see people's faces start to melt. And my favorite moment in the movie is just one shot where the crowd is cheering, and it cuts to a woman, and she has her mouth open. And as the the cheer of the crowd goes away, you just hear one single scream coming out of her mouth, and it is a blood-curdling scream. And it, my, I, Christian referenced this before we started recording, but my, my letterbox review for this was it's the best horror movie of the year, and it made me wonder what Christopher Nolan could do with a, a horror project. It is terrifying. Better and, than the Boogeyman, it seems. <laughs> listen, it's not hard to be better than the Boogeyman. I just really like the Boogeyman. <laughs> the oh man what was what was what was I even going to would this movie be better with John Cena Jackie Chan or Dwayne Johnson <laughs> well here's the problem um, I don't know if there are any Asian characters in the entire movie so I don't know where we are going to well, place this, Jackie this Chan bomb does do a lot to a specific country in Asia that he is not from that he is not from but is <laughs> next to so just cut to Jackie Chan playing like an <laughs> so, old guy who's like happy about it we, or what should we recast uh, Dwayne Johnson as Truman <laughs> just take the Gary Oldman out of it and just you know have the rock be the president what if this? What if we remake Oppenheimer, but John Cena plays J. Robert Oppenheimer and Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays Louis Strauss? <laughs> Even though these are real people from history and those two are double the size of those men. I think the conclusion we've reached is this movie would not be better with John Cena, <laughs> okay, okay, Jackie okay. Chan, or no. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, imagine this movie, but Dwayne The Rock Johnson is in the Florence Pugh <laughs> The scene of her staring at Emily Blunt in the hearing I'm going to be honest, I don't know if I can handle all that Dwayne The Rock Johnson on my big IMAX screen. That's I'll tell lot. you what, to see Dwayne The Rock Johnson pull off any kind of performance aside from the Walmart brand version of himself that he's been putting in movies for the last 10 years, I would appreciate it. it Even would, if it meant he had to play Dean Tapp. Could you imagine him in the boardroom scene where Emily yes, Blunt's watching him I and then all been. of a sudden for the last Dwayne minutes. The Rock Johnson is on top of Killian Murphy just staring Emily Blunt in the eyes. And then you hear a crunch and you realize that Killian Murphy's pelvis is split into a bajillion pieces. We are, we are off the rails. 
I mean, look, I... He, imagine the scene where he's reading Sanskrit saying, I have become death to the story of worlds, but into Dwayne The Rock Johnson's eyes. Come on. To be fair, in the movie, he reads it into Florence Pugh's, shall we say, breasts. So yeah. he could do that to Dwayne The Rock Johnson, too. Uh, the, the, there there's some sizable pectorals on that man. So. <laughs> With that, folks... Those are our top five movies of the year so far. Nick, you are our guest. I turn to you first to recount your list. So my list is number five, The Boogeyman. Number four, Sanctuary. Number three, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Number two, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And number one, Oppenheimer. For me, number five was Past Lives. Number four, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Number three, Across the Spider-Verse. Number two, Oppenheimer. And number one, John Wick, Chapter Four. For me, number five is Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Specifically his. Number four is Oppenheimer. Number three is Past Lives. Number two, Scream Six. And number one, Across the Spider-Verse. Now, fellas, there are a lot of movies that came out in 2023. I want you to know that we're an hour and 24 minutes in. I, I, I do know that. Okay, cool. And and so I'm going to finish my sentence in a way that you'll appreciate. Okay. And I would love to know some of your honorable mentions for the year. And basically, a sentence or two at most about them, as lovely Christian here gets to edit this podcast. <laughs> but uh, just a few movies that stood out to you that we didn't get a chance to mention yet. One for me, Joyride, the comedy following uh, four friends going to China in search of one friend's birth mother is frankly just one of the funniest movies I've seen in a theater in a long-ass time, and I heartily recommend it to anybody who likes comedies. It stars Ashley Park, Stephanie Sue, and uh, Sherry Cola, and I'm forgetting the last name for the actress who plays Deadeye, I'm so sorry, but uh, yes, very, very funny movie. Strongly recommend. Okay, Suzume by Makoto Shinkai, which is a movie that came out in Japan last year, was released this year. I love Makoto Shinkai. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I think Weathering With You is is one of the masterpieces that has come out in the past like five years. He has released the more popular Your Name. People will most likely know him from that movie. Um, man, Suzume is about a girl who teams up with a stranger she meets to rush across different parts of Japan and close the supernatural doors to prevent a supernatural worm that's creating earthquakes across all of Japan. Nice. It's amazing. It is amazing. Um, it, it just barely, barely, barely misses my list, but at one point the stranger she meets turns into a, into a chair. And so she's traveling around with this chair to all of these different doors as they're also looking for a magic cat. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm I'm not I'm not gonna talk about this for long because I don't have enough to say. But really enjoy Bo is Afraid. Uh, left the theater n- n- having no idea of how I felt, which is honestly kind of a fun position to be in. Yeah. Walking out of a movie, going, I don't really know how that made me feel. Um, and about 45 minutes after it ended, I was like, that was awesome. Um, ending of that movie is up there for. <laughs> top endings of the year for me as as we kind of got towards the ending i was like is he gonna do what i think he's gonna do and then he did and all i could do was sit back in awe and uh, the urge to clap was strong um i know there was heavily divisive reaction to this movie and that makes complete sense i liked this movie it's or, another one that i missed and i'm sad uh, about it I, or at least like i'm not neutral i am on the positive side this is one of the movies though where i left thinking 
maybe directors and writers shouldn't have complete control. <laughs> maybe, maybe someone should like should stop them from making certain decisions. I I will almost always go to bed for complete control, but sometimes they prove you wrong. Scott, maybe you should fire that one up at 6 a.m. Yeah, there we go. That'd be a great choice. Another three-hour movie. Oh, there's so many movies I want to shout out in so little time. But, fellas, that is it. For our top five movies of the year, plus a little honorable mentions at the end there. Nick, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Everybody, go stream Track Record, which is wherever you can get music. Plus, Nick even releasing a lot of music in 2023 and last year as well. So, plenty to stream. Good vibes. Nick, how do would you describe your music? we get tickets to your shows? Yeah. Uh, to answer Christian's question, duh. Uh, answer, answer your question how do I describe it um, that's always the tough part uh, <laughs> I make uh, I have previously made uh, R&B adjacent pop and I now make indie music so what was the the last song that you had re- that released that uh, was Open featured. Season Open Season was I, I told you this and I was so proud and I thought about it it was really Simon and Garfunkel yeah. like vibes for yeah. me no, I love folk music. Um, I when I hear the opening of that song, I think that you have recently watched a Wes Anderson movie. Sure, like that's yeah. what <laughs> comes to mind. No, totally, yeah. Um, so yeah, indie music goes into indie rock, indie folk, indie electronic, but it's a nice, it's a nice big overarching branch to uh, to classify it. Do you have any shows coming up soon? I do not. No, just okay. working on working on a project and have more music coming out in the following in the coming months. So whenever so, that is, we'll, you'll you'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> We'll have to bring you back. I'm on. always back. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll be a great time. <laughs> Christian, of course, that is our show. So there are a few things that the folks listening along at home can do to continue to support us here, especially with our new branding. We've got things rolled out at Cinema on Tap now, and we have a new cinematic keg that we'll be tapping soon, which I'll mention after my spiel. So, of course, the spiel. You know the spiel if you've been listening to the show. But, number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review, if applicable. Helps us grow on those platforms and reach new listeners. And it brings a smile to our face and warmth in our hearts as we see those positive reviews come in. Plus, you could go find old episodes with Nick. We talked about Return of the Jedi. We talked about Arrival for Denis Villeneuve Month. Uh, That was a while ago. That was when Dune came out. Now Dune Part 2 is coming. Time flies when you're having fun watching movies, folks. So go check us out. Give us a rating review. We appreciate it. You can also send us an email to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. We are regularly checking that inbox for listener feedback, especially if you have movies you want us to talk about on the show, if you have ideas for cinematic kegs for us to tap and things you want us to spend a whole month talking about. We love to actually talk about things that you want to listen to. So send us your thoughts to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. Plus, when we do shows like this, our top five of the year so far, we love to get your movies, the ones that you've loved this year that you want to hear shouted out on the show. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, as well as Nick, an active Letterboxd user, where we are all rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. So coming up next month on the show, thank you for being so patient, listeners, we are going to be looking at modern high school movies, which it just so see, or just turns out are often centered on women and also written and directed by women. So looking at some high school movies, but from this female perspective. And we'll be starting with the new release, Bottoms, which is Emma Seligman's new movie, the director of Shiva Baby, and it stars Rachel Sennett and Ayo Adabiri. It's coming out in select theaters 
this Friday, and then we'll be expanding September 1st. Well, I guess when you're listening to this episode, it will have come out in select theaters, and it'll be expanding the following week when the episode drops. So check it out if you get a chance as we kick off our high school keg of the month in October or September. I'm, I'm, I'm losing it, folks. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? We have a guest next week. We do have a guest next week. Who is? So she is Megan Minori. She has some insider information on Bottoms because she has already seen it because of a very specific reason. I don't know if she wants me to reveal what that reason is, but she she very much said... She's uh, actually MSL. She actually, yes. Um, but she did... Uh, um, when, when I approached her about this episode, she said, look, Christian, I am down to be your Bottoms expert. And I go, you know what, Megan? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and with that, folks... <laughs> Until next time. Would the bottoms be better with Jackie Chan <laughs> playing The Rock Johnson or John Cena? John Cena. This has been Cinema on Tap.